You're listening to Climate Wired, a podcast on the issues, politics, and solutions to the climate and ecological crisis, recorded in Golden, BC. I am your host, Calvin Beauchene, and this episode is called Old Growth Forests as Climate Defense. Old growth forests have been one of the most contentious issues in Canadian politics. Similar to oil pipelines, they pit environmentalists against industry. On both sides, emotions run very high. So industry and workers want to protect their livelihoods and their jobs so they can feed their families and provide an income for themselves, where environmentalists want to protect these ecosystems for their climate and ecological benefits. And subsequently, old growth forests have become a polarizing topic in politics as well, just like pipelines. So to talk about old growth forests would make sense to talk about Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island near Port Renfrew, which saw over 1,000 people arrested over eight months in a number of different blockades against old growth logging in the area. And Ferry Creek is now the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. Prior to that was Clackwatt Sound in the 1990s. In 1993, near Tofino, where over 900 people were arrested in three months in what became later known as the War in the Woods. So both of these protests were very effective in helping to draw national attention to the issue of old growth logging and both garnered uh, a lot of media attention from both traditional media and social media as well, like we saw in Ferry Creek. Before that, there had also been protests against old growth logging in Haida Gwaii in the 1980s, as well as in Tomogamy in Ontario in the 1980s as well. And really, over the past number of decades, there have been lots of protests against old growth logging specifically on the West Coast and the Pacific Northwest in North America, so BC, Washington, Oregon, and California. And that's largely, I would say, because in those areas there is a relatively larger culture of environmental activism, but also because it's on the coast where you find these big trees that people are so passionate about protecting whether it's the redwoods in California or the Douglas firs or cedars in BC or Washington. And we've seen protests against old growth logging all over the world, whether it's in Brazil, in the Amazon rainforest, in New Zealand, Australia, and so forth. And activists have used a wide variety of tactics to stop old growth logging in their protests. You know, whether it's been tree sits, so activists sitting in some kind of structure in a tree for a number for a period of time to prevent it from being cut down locking themselves to logging equipment or other contraptions that they have made sitting in the road to prevent logging trucks from going through or more controversially and not really anymore but a tactic that was used in the 1980s and 1990s was tree spiking which is when activists would drill a nail into the tree and then warn the loggers and logging company that the tree 
had been spiked or some of the trees in the area have been spiked. And then the logging company would not cut them down because if their blade from the chainsaw or the saw at the mill were to hit that nail, it would damage or break their logging equipment. That being said, that tactic is not really used anymore because of the fact that it can be dangerous to the loggers. So why is protecting old growth forests so important? Old growth forests are one of our best defenses against climate breakdown, and they are one of our last best hopes in preventing catastrophic warming in the future. So just like oceans, forests are a natural carbon sink, as everyone knows, in that they absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they produce oxygen that we, of course, use to breathe as humans. What I didn't know was that trees actually capture and sequester carbon exponentially faster as they get older. One study from the University of Hamburg showed that trees absorb 70% of the CO2 in their lifetime in the second half of their lives. So as trees get older, they're more effective at absorbing CO2. And you, you might ask, you know, if we cut these trees down and we're using that timber for, you know, to build a house, for example, isn't that carbon being stored in the wood in that house? The answer is, I mean, yes, it is, but not all of the wood from the trees goes to things like that. Number one, a lot of the wood from logging operations is wasted and is left on the cut block. And if you've ever walked through a recent clear cut, you would be able to see this. So a lot of the wood from the branches and so forth is left and often gets burned in slash piles which then, of course, releases that CO2 back into the atmosphere. Also, a lot of the products that the trees goes towards is for disposable products, whether it's for paper, paper cups, and so forth, things that end up in the landfill. And when they decompose again, they're releasing that carbon back into the atmosphere. And of course, industry is required to plant trees after cutting them down. But as I just explained, younger trees aren't as effective in capturing CO2 as older trees. So a new plantation is not going to be as effective as an old growth forest in helping to mitigate climate change. And during the Ferry Creek protests in 2021, I remember this distinctly. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change actually came out, came out with their new report at the time that basically said the earth was on track to overshoot the 1.5 degrees Celsius target that almost every country in the world agreed to limit warming to in the Paris Agreement on climate change. And I remember this distinctly when it came out because number one, it came out shortly after the heat dome event in BC where over 600 people died and where heat records were shattered across the province and the town of Lytton had just burned down. So it was super ironic or unironic timing when this report came out from that event, but it also came out during the protests at Ferry Creek. And I immediately put two and two together because 
myself, uh, like a lot of other people, know that old growth forests are so important in helping to fight climate change. And it seemed crazy that at the time, the UN was warning us about uh, the future effects of the climate crisis if emissions aren't reduced. But at the same time, the provincial government of BC was trying to log this old growth forest, which is so crucial if we want to prevent for future warming in the future. So this in at a time where old growth forests are also very important for biodiversity and certain species like the marbled merlet bird and the northern spotted owl, for instance, rely on old growth forests to survive. Uh, the marbled merlet bird nests in the moss of old growth trees and the northern spotted owl also likes to nest in older trees as well. So without old growth forests, those species wouldn't be able to live anymore. And old growth forests in general also just have more biodiversity than a new planted forest, which, you know, I planted trees for five years. You're planting thousands and thousands of the one or two species of trees that are all of the same age. So that obviously is going to have a lot less biodiversity than a natural mature forest. Uh, and for that reason, it's a new forest is also a lot more prone to things like disease and insects. If one disease or insects likes a certain tree of a certain age, and that tree is in a new plantation, it can wipe out all those trees where if a certain insect likes a specific tree in an old growth forest, I mean, it might wipe out some of the trees, but it's not going to wipe out all of them because there's a variety of tree species. And if you've ever actually walked in an old growth forest, you would know that it's a, it has a special, unique feeling to being in one. And if you've been in a plantation, for example, it doesn't have the same feeling at all. It doesn't really feel like you're in a forest. It feels like you're in a tree farm, which is essentially what that is. So old growth forests have a lot more biodiversity and they're also more resilient to wildfires, which as we know is becoming more common and more intense because of the climate crisis. And that's because bigger trees are harder to light. If you think of lighting a campfire, you're going to start with kindling smaller wood, wood that's easier to light at first and then start with the bigger wood. So the bigger trees are harder to catch on fire as opposed to the smaller trees that are planted after logging takes place. Old growth forests are also important in helping to mitigate flooding and landslides. And so we also know from climate change that uh, extreme flooding events are going to become more common as warmer air can hold more water vapor. So those big trees with big roots help anchor that soil to the ground. And when we have these big rain events, when there's soil there, that rain gets absorbed by the soil. If there's no soil, all that water runs off into our waterways. And when the trees are cut, there's nothing to anchor that soil anymore, which means all that soil runs off into our waterways as well, which can lead to things like mudslides, where in 2021, we also saw the, the mudslides that did severe damage to our highways and our infrastructure 
and were one of the most expensive uh, extreme weather events in our province's history. So there's lots of reasons why we should protect old growth forests for their climate and ecological benefits. It's commonly said that less than 3% of the original old growth forests remain in the province of BC, according to independent scientists. So since there is so little of this forest left, it's critical that we protect what is left for their benefits to the climate and for ecosystems and for people as well. So we've seen some progress in protecting old growth forests in the past couple of years and decades. In 2006, we saw the Great Bear Rainforest Agreement come out, which was an agreement between industry, environmental groups, and government to protect a large swath of the Great Bear Rainforest, which is the ecosystem that spans from north of Vancouver Island all the way up to Alaska and is home to the iconic spirit bear in BC. After Ferry Creek, we also saw a number of deferrals for old growth logging in the province, including the area around Ferry Creek. But the reality is there's still a lot of old growth forest in the province that isn't protected and that is at risk of being logged or is being logged right now. And the logging industry is so entrenched in our politics and in our society in BC, like so many other industries around the world. And what I found crazy from Ferry Creek was that the provincial government spent almost $20 million on policing costs alone in Ferry Creek to, to get the protesters out and to make sure that that area was logged. In my mind, that money could have much been better spent to compensate the rural communities and the First Nations communities in the area so that we wouldn't have to log Ferry Creek. We could have said, you know, okay, for this specific area, we're going to keep these trees standing because they have such benefits to the climate and to people as well. So we'll pay you the money you would have made cutting these trees down for that specific area. And obviously that's not a long-term solution. We can't pay these workers for the rest of their lives so they don't have to work anymore. Uh, but I don't think there's any activist out there that that is against all logging. The idea is that we're just gonna stop old growth logging and logging can continue in other areas as it normally would. So this could have been an exception uh, and in other areas where there's old growth where we said, okay, we're not gonna cut this down, but we're gonna pay you instead what the government did was we spent almost $20 million of our tax money on policing costs instead. So that just goes to show how much of an influence the logging industry has in the province. Uh, but for the reasons I explained, it's critical that we protect our old growth forests, just like we need to phase out fossil fuels. We have to protect what's left of our old growth forests to prevent further climate chaos in the future. All right, I'm here with Jenna Scholhoff, who is the Columbia Valley Conservation Coordinator for WildSite. So thank you, Jenna, for being on the show today. No problem. Thanks for having me. 
All right, so for those who don't know, WildSight is an environmental not-for-profit organization that focuses on sustainable communities, biodiversity protection, and environmental education in the Kootenays. And the Columbia Valley refers to around the Golden Area, down south to Invermere, and sort of back up west, northwest to Revelstoke. So that sort of geographical area. And so, yeah, can Jenna, can you just tell us a little more about your role as Columbia Valley Conservation Coordinator? Just sort of give us a better idea of, um, you know, what your job entails, what are sort of the things you've been working on uh, to protect old growth forests, but also um, to achieve some of the goals of wild site in general? Yeah, uh, sure. Sure. So... Uh, as a Columbia Valley Conservation Coordinator, I'm yeah I'm based here in Golden, but like you say, the area that I cover is um, from Canal Flats, like upstream to Revelstoke. So the stuff that I I focus on isn't just in Golden. Um, and what do I do that specific old growth? Well, <clears throat> recently, um, well one of our campaigns is on the inland temperate rainforest. Um, it is an endangered ecosystem um, that we mostly think of as maybe um, existing in Revelstoke, but the inland temperate rainforest is, like I say, an endangered ecosystem, which is a rainforest ecosystem found in the interior of BC. Um, and it is only found here and nowhere else in the world. Maybe like a tiny little bit of it is found in um, Russia, but that's pretty much all logged now. And this ecosystem we say is critically endangered because of um, logging. When you think of the old growth rainforest or the old growth forest, you're probably thinking of either coastal forests or maybe you're thinking of this inland temperate rainforest with like huge um, uh, uh, cedar trees or hemlock trees and and that we have in Revelstoke and actually north of Golden as well um, in the in the kin basket and so one of the yeah what like I say one of the focuses that I have is um, on protecting that and and educating uh, folks about the inland temperate rainforest and protecting the biodiversity that is found within it um, there's like over a thousand different kinds of lichen, for example, that's found in this inland temperate rainforest, which is just an indicator of the incredible biodiversity that's found there. Um, uh, another thing that I, I do is um, more like on the ground stuff is um, reviewing harvest plans uh, for local uh, timber companies. So a company, that works around three companies kind of work around um, the golden area and that's Canfor, British Columbia Timber Sales and Pacific Wood Tech and they will submit their harvest plans um, potentially for each year or maybe for three years or maybe for five years and so myself along with um, uh, another staff from WildSate will look at these harvest plans and we look to see that um, the values that that WildSite are concerned about, like wildlife or um, conservation, are considered in these harvest plans. So 
we want to ensure that um, there's still um, movement corridors for, for wildlife. We want to ensure that there's, um, you know, communities wouldn't be necessarily impacted by uh, harvesting maybe for um, like hydrologic, hydrological issues. So um, if it's going to impact their drinking water or perhaps um, if they're going into a whole new valley um, that's never been logged before, we're going we're gonna to raise these issues and we're going to review these and, and submit comments and speak to local companies about this. Um, so those are the things that I do related to forest, I'd say. Um, and then there's, there's other projects like um, Western Toads uh, Cross the Road in Revelstoke. And so that's a bit of a focus of mine is how do we um, ensure that uh, all forms of wildlife um, have uh, equal s safety. So instead of getting run over um, by by cars in in Revelstoke, hopefully we can find a solution so they they can cross um, they can cross safely. So that's another little project that I'm working on. Okay, yeah, I remember when I did when WildSite hold held the old growth forest walk. I think it was like two years ago, so before you started, and then that was up the kin basket, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's I mean it's a rainforest there, and mm -hmm. that. Like, I was surprised to see such big trees there. Like, mm -hmm. I thought they would only, trees that size would only be on the coast. Mm -hmm. So, like, I didn't know that there were trees that big there. And I'm sure a lot of other people don't know. So, it is a surprising thing, like, so far from the coast that mm -hmm. we have this unique ecosystem. And that it's, like, also home for species like caribou mm -hmm. and grizzly bears, which are in, are majorly threatened in the province as well. And then... I was just wondering for the harvest plans, like when you and your colleagues sort of look at these plans, is it is it generally like um, positive or is it kind of when you look at these plans, you're sort of like, oh, my God, like this, there's so much that needs to be improved. Um, it kind of just depends on on the plan. I mean, just in general, it's it's always heartbreaking to look at these plans and and just know that um, more primary forest, which is forest that hasn't been cut down, um, continues to be cut down in BC, and that's like across the province. Um, and it, it, but it's also difficult for forestry companies because they're they're running out of wood. Like we've harvested so much um, in in some areas that. And, and also they would say that there's there's more restrictions now than ever. So they're they're running out of places that um, that they can harvest. And so they're looking to expand into other areas sometimes. And um, so so sometimes that's concerning. But but they do have um, quite a long list of considerations um, and, and legal responsibilities. And so for the most part, forestry companies are um, are respecting um, their legal obligations and um, they're respecting the rules. The, the problem is um, above actually the forestry companies, it's more um, the Ministry of Forests, um, which sets these rules and standards and regulations um, that, that allows for um, the harvesting of um, old growth, for example. Um, that, and that's more concerning actually, than um, the timber companies, which um, 
are, are following the rules that are set out for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if they're running out of wood, I guess they're obviously going to look to an old growth forest for for better timber, better quality, more timber. Well, it's not yeah. that they're that's where they're going to look for, but a lot of times, um, you know, the the big trees um, hold hold a lot of economic value as well. So um, that you know, pe- people. Cedar is a very valuable product, for example, um, and a big old Douglas fir is, is a very valuable product. So you can understand why um, uh, why companies want to continue harvesting these trees. Um, and a carpenter will tell you that he or she really enjoys working with that beautiful wood as well. Um, but we um, need to transition to cutting um, second growth forests um, and looking at other um forest harvesting um, solutions and and to consider other values in harvesting forests and not just not just the bottom line profit um, but also um, values to wildlife and values to water as well um, and um, what you know um, there was the old growth strategic review that was um, that was written uh, a number of years ago and out of that came 14 recommendations and um, the province is currently committed to implementing all 14 of those recommendations. And so that's, that's really significant. That's really positive. Um, mm-hmm. And that work is ongoing right now. So, so um, you know, as, as part of our work, we, we um, you know, my, my colleague Eddie works really closely with um, uh, a number of other organizations ensuring that... Uh, these these recommendations are implemented as soon as possible, mm-hmm. and um, to their their fullest. Um, you know the old growth deferrals um, that some some people might know about are um, a direct result of that old growth strategic review, um, and so that's a number of um, patches of old growth that have been. Um, set aside temporarily so they would not be cut until um you know some more discussion has been had Mm -hmm. and sort of like from my understanding one of the 14 recommendations is like just to stop logging old growth in general I i don't know if that was a directly a um recommendation of the old growth strategic review it's definitely um something that WildSite is interested in is that we do not want to see any more logging of old growth. One of the recommendations specifically says to um, manage ecosystems um, based on on health and so manage the forest based on ecosystem health and biodiversity and so not only forest but that is now um, going like across the province and so the result of managing a forest or a, a landscape for the health of an ecosystem would probably end up being that um, we we should stop logging old mm-hmm. growth forests. But it doesn't, ex- I don't believe it explicitly says okay. to stop yeah. logging old growth. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess a lot of it is sort of up for interpretation. But I know like a lot of people would sort of say like the government committed to this or yeah, like they committed to this plan sort of two years ago and they're sort of dragging their feet on this. But, you know, um, I don't know if I can really speak to that so yeah. much. Like, um, 
as because I'm not um, such an expert in um, exactly the the policies that are taking place right now. I'm more focused on um, the the uh, educational aspects of um, ensuring that folks know about where old growth is found and, and the, um, why it's important. Mm -hmm. So on that note, you did the old growth uh, hike recently in Golden. Mm -hmm. And so that was also held in different communities around mm -hmm. the Kootenays. So I was just wondering if you could just speak a little more to that, sort of what were your goals in having those hikes and if, you know, what were the outcomes that you think sort of came out of that? Yeah, the hikes were awesome. Um, we held them in uh, five communities, um, and uh, they're really well attended. Um, we basically, the point was to get people out into old growth um, near their communities. And so, like I said, you know, we when we think of old growth, we might think of big old cedars with like moss dripping off them and they're super wet, but that's not necessarily the case if you were to go here in Golden, um, right around town, you know, we don't have big old cedars, but we do have some big old Douglas firs. And so that's what we visited um, here in Golden. We visited some big old Douglas firs just south of town. Um, and in say like around Kimberley, they don't, they have big old um, ponderosa pine. And so the point was to get people out to see these old forests and, um, to recognize that they're all different and they all have um, value um, and and different um, um, different things that you would find in them. So, and just to get the conversation going about uh, where we're at in terms of um, the province's commitments to old growth and biodiversity, and um, to yeah to learn about the the ecosystem itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's a better way to do that than like actually getting people out there and seeing those trees. Like when I saw the trees, yeah, up the kin basket, it was like really eye opening. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. If you ever get the chance, um, people on this podcast should go visit the Giant Cedars Trail, which is a rec sites and trail, uh, rec sites and trails BC site, which is about 32 clicks up the up the B road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's where we went. Yeah, it was great. It was so beautiful there. Um, so since you've been doing this role for about a year? Uh, yeah, right? seven months. Okay, so a bit less than a year. Um, so I guess since you've started in that seven months, have you sort of seen any progress around old growth forests and conservation? I mean, either in your work, but also could be you know the greater area that wild site works or the province mm -hmm. you know, have you seen sort of any progress come from there well I think it's really encouraging to have like these uh, conversations like we're having today is that you know people are, are certainly interested in the topic and um, and people are, are curious about what's going on and um, the the feedback from uh, members of the community has been really positive especially with um, like the old growth walks and they, the people are hungry to, to learn more. Um, like for example, here in Golden, there's talk about um, getting a community forest and there's a number of people that came out to learn about that. Um, and so I just think that it, it's really positive that um, people want to learn more about old forests and where they are. Um, in terms of um, 
you know, some of, I, I guess, I guess I can't speak so much to my, my colleagues where he's do, doing a great job of, um, investigating, um, more like specific issues. Like some, some folks might be familiar with, um, uh, was it, um, Downey wanted to, uh, not log a specific, um, cut block in and around Revelstoke. Downey being the harvesting, uh, the timber company. And, um, and they didn't want to harvest it because, uh, it was part of the old growth deferral and it, um, they didn't really feel like they had the social license to do that. Um, but British Columbia timber sales was, um, forcing them to do that. So, so, uh, my colleague Eddie did a great job of, um, bringing that, that issue to light. Um, mm -hmm. and what the outcome of that was, um, that they uh, they backpedaled and um, that that particular block was never harvested. Okay. Um, so that's that was a positive outcome that's happened in the last year for sure. Okay. Yeah, I remember when that sort of idea came out. And so BCTS, they're the government-owned sort of company. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They're the province's timber company. Okay. Yeah, and then the other one was I don't know if you worked on it specifically, but the Incomplu River Valley. Yeah, the Incomaplu has been, uh, what is it like, I think the numbers are wrong, but it's now like something around 58,000 hectares of old growth forest that's now protected. Great, yeah. Um, and that's north of Revelstoke? That is adjacent to Glacier National Park. Um, so it is, how would you call that? Um, uh, it is south of Revelstoke. Um, Hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine it on the map. Basically, it's adjacent to um, to Glacier National Park. I think it comes off the south uh, west end of it. Um, it's really hard to access. Um, it's like deep wilderness there. Okay. Um, some parts of it are still open to um, some resource extractive industry, I believe, um, but a lot less than than what it was before but essentially it's um essentially it's it's protected now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay yeah that was big news i remember when yeah that it's huge it, i'm i mean um people have been fighting for its protection for something like 30 years yeah crazy mm -hmm. awesome so yeah that's a that's a major win for sure um and then sort of i guess looking into the future i mean is there like sort of some specific things that you would like to see from the province to protect old growth? I mean, for example, like all the old growth forests being deferred instead of just some of it or. Any oh other yeah. Things? I mean, yeah. yeah. If, um, if we really started to, to, um, to, well, to stop logging in caribou habitat for for one, um, you know our caribou are in a critical um, in a critical state. Our mountain caribou here in the area, mm -hmm. um, there's already been a number of herds extirpated. Um, so, stop logging in caribou habitat. Stop stop logging old growth forests. We have such little left, and and to start to be more innovative um, with the the forests that we have um, and. Um, and I've heard, um, lots of talk about transitioning to a resource added, um, um, 
or, or value added forestry. So it's not just um, exporting raw logs, but also like how can how can we use these um, like smaller trees um, so that there's still value. Um, because, you know, of course, a, a much bigger tree is going to have more value than a, a small tree. But how can we still um, get value out of that? Um, um, what else do I want to see? <laughs> um, ensuring that um, communities have um, an answer. Uh, so instead of just saying, no, we don't want old growth forest logged, and then they don't have um, any more economic activity, like ensuring that communities have the ability to say no, that that they don't want their old forest logged and that they um, can afford to, to say no and that they can um, do something else. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk about ensuring that there's conservation financing, maybe for um, uh, um, essentially, yeah, essentially for that so that folks, um, so communities can say no and, and then there's um, opportunities for them to develop their economies in other ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big one, I think, for sure. And that could even be the same for like, you know, fossil fuel projects is like, you know, if you're not going to give this what it could be an economic boost for this impoverished First Nations or rural community or whatever, mm -hmm. then it's like sort of offering up an alternative. And I sort of talked about that in the intro as well. And that like during Ferry Creek, for example, the the provincial government spent over $20 million in just policing costs mm -hmm. where that money could have like gone to compensate the, the first nations who were in favor of the logging to say, you know, we're going to keep this forest because of its climate and ecological benefits, but we're going to give you this money that you would have made totally. logging that instead. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, thank you, Jenna, for, um, sharing your knowledge today. And no problem. I yeah. hope that I um, got my facts right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah. And yeah, thank you for all the work you're doing. Yeah, no problem. Um, and if uh, anybody has any questions, you can you can reach me at jenna at wildsite.ca. There you go. <laughs> all right. So I'm here with Virginia Thompson, who is an organizer and activist with the group Old Growth Revolution based in Revelstoke. And this was the group that was responsible for forming the Big Mouth blockade at the entrance of the Big Mouth Forest Service Road, about 120 kilometers north of Revelstoke. So Virginia, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Calvin. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for doing this. So for the listeners that have no idea what Old Growth Revolution is, can you just explain what the group is, how it started, and also how the, the blockade on the Big Mouth Forest Service Road started as well? Okay, well... It goes back to um, the spring of 2021 um, when a young woman from Ferry Creek uh, blockade on the island, Vancouver Island, came to Revelstoke to um, be a firefighter, um, wildfire fighter for the Ministry of Forests. 
and she set up a solo demonstration um, in the town square here um, in the Banshell. It was the most creative thing and very brave of her in a logging town with a mill. Um, and she wore little fairy wings and she had a sign, where will the fairies sleep? <laughs> this is in support of Fairy Creek, of course, and uh, a dress, a red dress for the um, murdered and missing indigenous women and a sign, very good signs with more standing, protect old growth, um, what's three to 7%, is that so much, you know, to, to protect? And uh, she sat there all day, one Saturday, uh, the end of May, and, and people stopped and talked to her. The next week, 100 people joined her. Hmm. Was incredible. I, I was there, and there was a sound system. People got up and spoke. It was an open mic. It went on for, I think, two hours. There was a chalk circle the size of the biggest tree on Vancouver Island, supposedly, and we made a circle. And this wonderful young woman who was leading this um, rally um, called the premier, and we all shouted, save old growth, protect old growth. So then the following, that was the end of May, and then um, the beginning, the long weekend, July 1st, there was a march from Arts Town Square to the courthouse with over 100 people, people carrying signs. There were speeches, the sound system at the courthouse. There were people from elsewhere this time too, people from south of us, um, environmentalists. Um, in the meantime, between these two rallies, um, there'd been a small meeting with this young woman and myself, um, environmentalists from south of here, um, other firefighters um, at Stobert Lake, which is near Trout Lake across the ferry here at uh, Shelter Bay. And we decided to move ahead and start having nonviolent civil disobedience in some ways. And, and uh, the name Revolution was born then. Um, actually, it was this young woman who made it up. So then July 6th, um, after the rally on the first, um, we, Old Growth Revolution, myself and two others, announced on the steps of City Hall that we would do the blockade at the Big Mouth. Um, and we wanted to save Argonaut Creek, which was a pristine valley sub-watershed off the Big Mouth, but also um, the whole Big Mouth. And we wanted to save old growth and the primary forest here that has never been logged. And we said that it was going to be a nonviolent civil disobedience on the philosophy of Gandhi, Satyagraha, based on love. And that's what we did. So we went up and threw out logging road building equipment um, from um, building a road into Argonaut Creek. Well, we didn't throw them out right away. We blocked them in, actually. And two days later, we let them out on the condition where they knew they couldn't go back in. Um, yeah. The police had been involved. There was a negotiation. It was all peaceful. So we let them out, but we said, you can never come back in, though. <laughs> and so that blockade, that was the beginning. 
we had so much support. I can't believe it. And the numbers of people who come up for the day or camp, or I mean, you know, I'm talking 30, 40 people. We had a kitchen. We had, you know, everything donated. A farmer donated vegetables to us for six months until Christmas. Wow. Um, for instance, and everything else was incredible. People gave in kind, gave money, gave, and the Fairy Creek people supported us a lot with just how to do things. Um, anyway, it was a wonderful feeling of camaraderie. And the First Nations came, all of them, all, there are four First Nations in this valley with sometimes competing land claims. <laughs> There's the Naiks, the Sequetmec, the Tanaha, and the Silks, Okanagan. And they, all came. The Tanaha sent a message. They didn't come in person. All the others came up and they did the most beautiful ceremony. They smudged. They blessed us. They, they, there wasn't a dry eye. They called the land defenders us up and they blessed the forest and us. And <clears throat> it was, it was very moving. And then they made flags. They did a flag ceremony and we went out and they made us put it around this enormous tree. And the flags are there to this day, um, six kilometers in. Anyway, um, the, the logging equipment went up to Nagel, 146 kilometers on the west side, the other side of the Columbia, just, just um, shy of the Mica Dam. And they were building a logging road in there. So we went over there and blocked them in again. Okay. <laughs> and then they, we let them out and blockaded there till the end of August. So that's sort of how we got going and what happened early on. But it went on <laughs> for 10 months. We had a continuous presence at the mouth all through the winter. And I, that we, there's 30 feet of snow up there. It's more than we get here. I mean, it's extraordinary what went on and what people did. I don't so know if you want more detail about that or not. Yeah. And you stayed, so you said you moved the one location, then did you move back and stay there? Oh, no, we had two going at once. We had both okay. of the going at the okay. same time. Yeah, for quite a few weeks there in August. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we had enough people. We could do both for a while. Interesting. Okay. And, and then, then, you know, September came. And I mean, we had such a wonderful, diverse group of people, a lot of professionals and some teachers. And of course, they had to go back to work. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I mean, we had lawyers, doctors, <sighs> tradespeople, electricians, um, young people, old people, firefighters, kids, families, and people from Alberta, people from Ferry Creek people from south of here, um, yeah. Nelson. And it was really um, inspiring. <laughs> yeah. And so so would you kind of just go like back and forth throughout that winter then? Well, the winter was really something. Um, uh, anyway, to back up just slightly, we did, um, well, a fellow came and built a teepee 18 feet high in the fall, September, and had a wood stove in there. And it's 
so he was there and I mean people would come with and stay in their trucks and keep warm and stuff end of November late in November we found out that Downey was um logging in deferral areas south of Revelstoke near the Acropolis and so we did a pop-up blockade there and that upset Downey tremendously and caused a meeting they had come up there to meet with us at the Big Mouth once, but we didn't really get anywhere. It was sort of a sign of goodwill. But um, And they told us they didn't want to do a, an injunction. Um, it would split the town. And I think also they had the mill in town, and I think they realized it wouldn't really be good for business if they did an injunction. <laughs> you know, Revelstoke's a town of 8,000, really in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so we were, we were thrown back on ourselves, you know, and it just wasn't going to work. I mean, I think it was a good decision in their part, but I think it was partly self-interest. <laughs> and yeah. um, so they, um, it was Downey that was logging in these deferral areas south of town. And so it caused a meeting and we met with them in town at, a, you know, a neutral place. And... Uh, they wanted to trade. They wanted to, there was a, a block at the entrance of the Argonaut Creek to the Big Mouth um, that had a, a K7FE block that was very valuable to them and us. Beautiful, amazing old growth. And uh, it would have continued the pristine Argonaut watershed right down to the water into the Big Mouth. Um, and they promised not to log it if, and they wanted us though to trade with for blocks on the other side of the river of the Big Both. And we took a, a vote. Now, OGR is a leaderless group and it's stayed that way. It's quite extraordinary. Now there are people that may take leader, more leadership roles than others and for a while and then, so, but it really is, was done on consensus. And so people said, no, we're yeah. not going to agree to that, and we're going to stay there, what's more. Um, and nobody could believe that. So a camper was donated. The teepee was moved closer to the highway. And people snowshoed and cross-country skied in, and somebody donated a, a, snow, um, a snowblower. I mean, it went on and on. Everything was donated. And, uh, and there were two women who are actually saints, <laughs> I think who swapped out in that camper. They would, one would go for three days and the other would go for the other four days every week. And they did that for months. And believe me, the drive up there is icy and with these huge snow banks that become icy and the only people you meet on the road pretty much, well, hydro workers and these logging trucks. And it's like an ice tunnel. And I stopped going up, I did not. I'm of a certain age. <laughs> And I used to go up every week and I did lots up there, but I did not. Anyway, um, and then there was the guy in the teepee and then others would come up and a second camper was purchased and the electrician, our electrician uh, wired it for solar. And so, you know, there were other people going up sometimes, but those were the core people all winter. And honestly, I can't, you know, and the fellow stayed up for 50 days straight one time. Yeah, these are dedicated people. 
And there are people with other lives, like the electrician after a few months had to go back to work. And the other one is gave music lessons and stuff. And, you know, uh, you know, everybody, I can say, you know, eventually had to go back to their lives. Um, so it ended in May 2022. Okay. And, yeah. So it was about... 10 months. Eight, 10, 10 months. Okay. 10 months. Started July 6th and ended mid-May. I think that's 10 months. Right. And so the company, they haven't, like, since the blockade ended, is that area, like, off limits now from logging? Well, it's interesting. Um, so originally, WildSite had noticed that BCTS, British Columbia Timber Sales, was planning to log the Argonaut Valley, which was a pristine valley up there. And so the winter before all this, or the year before, they had mounted a campaign and they had got their 14 blocks in that valley, cut blocks. They had managed to get deferrals on 11 of those blocks. We wanted, and they were building the road in on the first three though. The other 11 were from the back out of the valley. And they, so we wanted the other three deferred or protected because we could see they were building that road in and they would log the first three blocks for a couple of years. And then when the deferrals ran out, they just continue with the road and log the rest of it, right? We yeah. couldn't even interfere with their schedule. So uh -huh. we, we, there was back and forth. We tried to talk to BCTS and never would talk to us. They did ask us by letter one time if they could go in and, um, you know, fix the road so it wouldn't slide or whatnot. But we were afraid they were going to go in and continue the road or log. We couldn't trust them. They would never meet with us before that. They wouldn't communicate. We said, yes, they could if they deferred those three blocks. <laughs> and they, yeah. wouldn't. they wouldn't answer. And they snuck in one day with their geotechs and their um, various people to... Um, look at it and to see what they had to do and they lied to the people who were there um, mm -hmm. and that that we had said they could come in and we hadn't <laughs> and so anyway i went up actually and um they'd all come out they hadn't logged anything but you know they had done their all their reconnaissance and plans for what they were going to do in there and the geotech hadn't come out by the time I got up there and I put my car across and I stopped him and I said, you know, <laughs> we never said you could come in. And he said, you realize what's going to happen there? And I said, we know it might slide, but we think that's better than the whole valley being logged. So you might as well um, not come back up here because we won't let you in. And he was furious. Anyway, they did not. They, but they kept watching. I mean, we literally were there, except for maybe a couple of hours, a couple of times, because we felt that if we weren't there for even a day, they'd come in and with their chainsaws, and they'd get ensconced in there, and they'd just keep working. They'd set up camp and build road or whatnot. They eventually helicoptered in and made some ditches on the road. Um, okay. But yeah. 
So eventually what happened was the second round of deferrals, they deferred those three last blocks without native consultation. They just did it. Okay. So all 14 blocks are deferred and put into the herd planning process for mountain caribou, which so they are deferred until the herd planning is over and the herd planning is still going on because I'm still involved with that. I've been involved with mountain caribou protection for 17 years now. And I think that's a good thing because I think it's much more likely to get permanent protection. Yeah. Is that through the, the government? The oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> the provincial yeah. government. And they are working with Native peoples at the moment, the four, the four groups. I, I'm not sure about yeah. the Nyacks, but yeah, uh, on that. And then it will have broader consultation but about yeah. the herd planning. And they're doing the implementation of the, uh, the 14 recommendations of the Old Growth Strategic Review Panel. Yeah at the same time. So um, all, or all I, 14 of the, of the cut blocks are deferred right now. Yeah, and yeah. wedded with the herd planning process. Yeah. And so that's a big win, I think, that we got. And yeah. Downey <laughs> is still trying not to log K7FE, that block at the bottom of Argonaut Creek. Um, and that hit the papers recently because BCTS is now threatening to mm -hmm. fine them for not logging it. They've deferred it for as long as they can. Like they get can get extensions, but they can force you to log things. And you know, under the allowable annual cut, and it's already been approved. And they want money back and. They're threatening to penalize Downey. And so Downey went to the press and it's still in negotiation. So we may get K7FE out of this too. The yeah. other thing that was accomplished was a huge amount of education in Revelstoke and awareness yeah. um, and, and even more broadly. It was marvelous. We did, we did tables at the markets all summer and fall. We okay. had Old Growth Revolution had a table and with pamphlets and photographs and educated people. It was wonderful. And we had a mending circle, two mending circles, when things fell apart at Ferry Creek and the CERG community industry response group came in and was so sort of violent toward the defenders and so on and sprayed them. and. Um, and when things deteriorated so badly with, with, with the police behavior, we did a mending circle at the police station here on the front lawn. We had all kinds of people there. It was just old growth revolution too. And everyone brought mending and we sat there all day and mended. And what is, what is mending? Sorry. They were, we were all mending whatever we needed to mend our shirts or our underwear or whatever. And we were told to bring mending, and so everybody did, men and women. And and the police came out and said, what are you doing? And we said, we're mending. We're trying to repair the relationship with the police. We think it needs mending. <laughs> and the press came, and it got into the paper. All kinds of things got into the paper here, like our announcement of the blockade and the, the native people's press release, their support for us. And mm -hmm. well, we had wonderful um, press um, coverage, I would say, throughout. Um, 
So we did the mending circles. And then we went to the um, Ministry of Forests office here and did a mending circle there because British Columbia Timber Sales is there and the government. And, and we said, we think things need to be repaired in this relationship. Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. It's in a creative, yeah. creative action. Yes, that was one wonderful woman, uh, one of our group who thought that up and, and organized that. Yeah. Um, so I guess, do you, I guess other besides the, so now that the blockade is ended, um, like since it's ended, has there been some of the, some things that World Growth Revolution has continued to work on? Yes. Um, you know, um, we did a rally last winter in February here in Revelstoke and yeah. no, um, in support of the rally at the legislature in Victoria yeah. run by the elders for ancient forests, the Fairy Creek mm -hmm. um, people, you know, with Neil Young showing up and everything. Mm -hmm. We did a rally here and we got about 50 people out in the snow and it wasn't great weather. We thought that was marvelous. And we had invited speakers from away, but we, there were blizzards and they really couldn't get here. So we, we did our own speaking and it was a marvelous, wonderful vibe. And people were there with their kids and dogs and signs. And now it's last February. And, and we are now supporting Valhalla Wilderness Society in their park proposal for the Jordan Rainbow ancient forest which is very close to revelstoke across um the the um the revelstoke lake revelstoke above the revelstoke dam but it's very close to us um it's an ancient forest that was quite inaccessible and so has not been logged but <laughs> doesn't mean they couldn't do it <clears throat> If they, you know, if the price is right and they can hell you in and all that. So anyway, we're, we are actively supporting this. Um, so, you know, I mean, people did go back to their lives and everything, but we're still, um, we're still there. And I think the licensees know we're still there. <laughs> we did one pop-up blockade in November or we could do others and they know that. Um, and I realize they don't have the social license to just go and do whatever they want, you know, although they, I think they try to. Um, the nations came together here and agreed that there should be no logging in deferral areas in this valley. That, that happened last August, and I think the licensees are basically abiding by that most of the time, except for maybe British Columbia timber sales, which is a government. I think they're the outlier on that. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I think we're, we're still a presence to be reckoned with in some ways. And um, yeah, I think things have changed in the landscape here, um, you know, in terms of mindsets and consciousness and so on. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you, so you said there was a pop-up uh, blockade in November. Was that in the same location? No, that was at the Okokolik south of town here. 
um, where Downey was logging into deferral areas. I mean, we caught them. <laughs> There's no doubt. And we did a one-day pop-up blockade starting at 2.30 in the morning, and we blocked. We let other people through. There was one subcontractor. This was the only violence that we ever that contended with. I mean, there were a lot of, I would say, foul language um, in the fall last year when, you know, there were certain people, we were letting them through, but we'd have to move things to let them through, right? It would only take a minute or so, but they didn't like it. And they would curl some foul language at us sometimes. Um, I won't say which groups did that, but but at the Acopolis pop-up, um, a subcontractor, um, not the licensee, tried to run the people down, run us down. And these people jumped into the ditch in time, barely. Yeah. There were no injuries. It was shocking. They were shaken. And uh, we did tell Downey about this. It, it caused a meeting. Downey met with us literally two or three days later and wanted to trade and da-da-da-da-da, this and that, and blah, blah. And they stopped logging there. But the, the government gave them other blocks that were similar, close to the deferral areas. Because, of course, people know, I hope, that the deferral areas are not all of what needs to be protected. They're just areas identified that might be logged within the time frame of implementing the old growth review panel's recommendations, which are supposed to have been done in three years, in September. So it was only stuff that might be logged then. It's not in any way what yeah. needs to be protected. I quite confusing to people I think it's a very complicated thing really that's going on um anyway I, I yeah. needs... and the government sort of lacks like um like restrictions like a if a company logs in a deferral area like they they could easily get away with it which was the case sounds like that was the case where you were too up until last August yeah when the when the nations came together and said no here and uh, then I think they backed off, except for BCTS. I don't think, I think they're the outlier here. Um, but, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, uh, elsewhere, I think it's still going on in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, uh, deferrals are being logged. Um, the other interesting thing that came out at our meeting with Downey last December, well, December, sorry, a year ago, December, um, after the pop-up blockade, um, the chief forester said, you know, the plan is, was, is to log all the primary forest, all the original forest. I already knew that from my work with caribou, but most people don't know that. That is the basic plan for logging in this whole province to log all the primary forest and put it into what they call a working forest or managed forest, i.e. a tree farm. Yeah. And if people, most people, when I tell them that, are shocked and don't want that to happen. And you see, he admitted that. And uh, he said, yeah, there isn't enough second growth yet for us to continue at the same rate, right? Mm -hmm. need to be a lot of changes. This is the inland temperate rainforest here that we're protecting. And it's the last one of any size, substantial size in the world. 
and it's unique. It's not quite the same as the coastal temperate rainforest. It has more lichen. It takes longer to grow a little bit. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit different. It's inland, obviously. Um, it's, it's priceless. It's unique. And there was a study done in 2021 by Della Sala et al. It was published in the journal Land that said that this inland temperate rainforest is in danger of collapse within the next, I think it was nine to 18 years then, and now it's seven to 15 years or something because a couple of years have elapsed since the study came out. It's shocking. It's critically endangered. This ecosystem, it's an ecosystem. Yeah. And it's unique. And mountain caribou evolved with this inland temperate rainforest since the last ice age. And they are found nowhere else in the world either. And they are not found anywhere. I mean, there were other inland temperate rainforests in Eastern Russia or Western Russia stuff, but, but they're gone really. Yeah. But the mountain caribou are unique. And so there is everything to protect here and we cannot keep logging. They said in the study, if logging continues as usual, that's what's going to happen. And it's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Um, just, I guess, one last thing. So just looking forward to the future and the group, like, do you, are there some other sort of plans for the group or like, hopefully this doesn't happen and that, I mean, hopefully the, the old growth around Revelstoke Soak is protected, but could you see like another long-term blockade starting if some of these pearl areas were opened up again? Ah, uh, well, we weren't just protecting deferral areas when we first blockaded. Yeah, um, we were protecting a pristine sub-watershed plus the, the whole Big Mouth Valley, which is vast, but is pretty heavily logged. Um, but anyway, I don't know. I mean, people go back to their lives. Time moves on. I can't look into the future. Mm -hmm. We still exist. We still have our little subcommittees. We still talk to each other all the time by text, um, you know, and people drop in and out from the old days. <laughs> um, not everyone's still in Revelstoke, but the core people, the core of this group was always Revelstoke. Um, I can't forecast, you know. I do think we will act. We are currently involved in trying to save this Jordan Rainbow um, ancient forest on the west side, just north of Revelstoke here. Um, and if that were threatened or I can't see where that's going for sure. I mean, the Valhalla has put in a park proposal and they're going to amend it and add to it and make it better. But, and they were the ones behind the Enconoplu, which was eventually put in mostly into conservancy. But, um, they, um, I could see people doing something, maybe. I, it's hard to know. We are, uh, you know, a leaderless group. <laughs> and, but I, I want to say one last thing. Yeah. I just want to say how proud I am of, of our group. The way we acted throughout that 10 months with all the various people and situations that happened. There were many situations with letting in recreationalists and hunters and trappers and 
dealing with people and dealing with loggers and dealing with, you know, the, the road builders, there was never an action of any violence, and I mean in any way, by word, by motion, by or any kind of physical thing. There was, we were a peaceful group completely. And I'm so proud of everybody mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. I mean, you guys are really lucky to have such a committed group of people. Um, but anyways, thanks. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences at the blockade and telling us a bit more about uh, the efforts in Revelstoke to protect old growth forests. Well, thank you, Calvin, so much for doing this. Okay. Thank you so much, Virginia. In May of this past year, the federal MP for West Vancouver Sea to Sky, Patrick Wheeler, introduced a private member's motion urging the federal government to stop logging old growth on federal lands and to ban the export of old growth products from Canada by 2030. So the idea of stopping old growth logging on federal land in BC doesn't really make any difference because only about 1% of the land in BC is owned by the federal government. The rest is owned by the provincial government. However, the part about banning the export of oil growth products from Canada by 2030 would directly impact the activities of logging going on on provincial crown lands. This motion would also send an important signal to the BC government that the federal government wants more protection for oil growth forests. The motion also asks for an increase in federal funding for the BC Oil Growth Protection Fund from 50 to 82 million, if matched by the province for a total of 164 million. So private members motions are not the same thing as bills, so it would not be law, but this motion would simply demonstrate that the parliament supports the federal government introducing a bill asking for the things in this motion. So it is a very important first step and in the U.S., we've seen some action to protect old growth forests as well. In April, Joe Biden set aside 453,000 square kilometers of old growth forests for permanent protection. So this motion by Patrick Wheeler has been introduced, but it has not been brought before Parliament for debate yet. So one thing that you can do is wherever you live in Canada, write to your federal MP and ask them that you want them to support this motion by Patrick Wheeler asking for a ban on old growth logging on federal lands and a ban on old growth exports from Canada by 2030. Less than 3% of the old growth forests are currently left in BC. We have to do everything we can to protect these precious ecosystems for the sake of our climate, biodiversity, and for humanity. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Climate Wired and thank you to our guests Jenna Schulhoff and Virginia Thompson. If you haven't already, you can follow the show on Spotify 
and if you hit the bell button, you'll get a notification for when the next episode comes out. Also, the show is now on Apple Podcasts, so you can find it on there as well. Thanks so much.